listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. And again, last week uh, we announced, if you're a guest or you were missing that, in, in just a couple weeks, in the first week of October, we are moving to a three-service uh, Sunday morning gatherings. And so uh, if you're like, well, it doesn't seem like we, we have some empty seats here. That's because many of us are up worshiping at the temple of Mercedes-Benz this past weekend. You know, uh, their false idol. That will disappoint them. Um, uh, but on a normal Sunday, uh, we ha- have not a lot of space. So we're moving to three services, first week October, and 8 o'clock, and 9.30, and 11. And so, uh, and that is going to require uh, a lot of movement on our, on our p- part and, and a lot of... Uh, just for you guys to, to be engaged on a Sunday. Uh, and so we are gonna have some tables outside after the service. If you're not on a Sunday morning service team, uh, we would invite you and really challenge you to jump on one of those. Uh, the biggest need is, is in CBC Kids. We need 15 new people um, at each service. Uh, we're gonna do a basic downstairs nursery for the eight o'clock service because the reality is most of us won't have our, our elementary kids uh, at that service, but we will want to provide babies uh, and, and downstairs. And so we'll need 15 new people for that. And then 15 at the other services just to fill the gaps in uh, during the service. So that's 45 people that we need to jump in there. We're going to need folks for coffee and hospitality. So those opportunities will be outside. We just want to encourage you and challenge you. We cannot pull it off uh, if, if the body doesn't step forward. And so uh, we invite you to, to pray about where God would put you. And he wants to put you somewhere and then jump in. And so that'll be off after the service outside, as long as it's not raining. Right now, the, we were just kind of holding off to make sure there was no uh, rain uh, so that we didn't have to move this stuff. So, and again, this is a great opportunity, y'all. This is a, it's a challenge and it's uh, one that we're excited about, but it's a great opportunity for you to be part of what God is doing and, and to move towards the work and to impact uh, the kingdom of God in a significant way. So I invite you to be part of that. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, as we continue our study in this, this series, we've called it All Authority, and we're about, we're on, we're on the downward slope. <laughs> we're on the downward slope, but we still have some significant ground to cover um, as we've been looking at really a section where Jesus is being opposed um, by, uh, by the Jewish leadership. It's interesting, if you think about, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus loves questions, I don't know if you ever noticed this. I, I kind of looked at it this week. There's, Jesus asks in just the four gospels, which is really a, a small portion of his ministry, if you look at the, the time uh, that it covers. He asks well over 300 questions of people, of his disciples, of, of, of the audiences. And it's, it's not because he needs answers. You realize that sometimes we ask questions and it's not because we need to know information. Sometimes we do. What time is lunch? Okay, good. What's your address? Okay, we need information there. Sometimes we ask questions uh, and we don't really need an answer. Sometimes we don't want an answer. So for instance, if we ask our kids, what in the world were you thinking? We don't really want to know. We're just saying it to make a point, right? Sometimes that's why we use questions. Sometimes we do have questions and, and there's questions that will not ever be answered probably. I got lots of those questions, okay? I, I have a question that I don't know if any of you have an answer to. It's, it's just something that I've struggled. Why is it that men can get their hair cut pretty much anywhere? But women, it's like you are loyal to a fault, 
Okay, if, you're, if your hair person switches over here, over here, over here, over here, you will follow them. And if, even if you get a bad haircut, you will still go back because there's some sort of guilt factor in there. Like, I can't switch. Men are like, Mr. Haircut, boom, and they're going in. I need a haircut. What's the closest place? Women are like, no, I cannot do, I don't know. If you have an answer for me, you can tell me later. But there's questions like that that maybe we never have an answer to, right? Jesus uses questions throughout his ministry for many reasons. Sometimes to get a conversation started. Woman, would you get me a drink, please? Let's engage that person, that woman at the well. Sometimes he wants people to think about what they believe. So he asks, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Sometimes he asks as a rebuke, where is your faith? Sometimes he asks questions to make a point. If a sheep falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, will you not bring it out? He asks questions to get people to think, to reveal what they believe. And ultimately he asks questions because he wants movement. He wants a response. And what we're gonna see in our text this morning is Jesus is gonna ask some questions. Uh, two of them, actually more than two. Uh, he's gonna ask multiple questions, but I'm gonna summarize it into three big questions. And the goal is movement. The goal is for us to self-evaluate, to ask ourselves the question, and then to see uh, what's the proper response to that question. Because Jesus is not asking it because he wants, because he needs information. He's asking because he wants us to think and to move. All right, so we're gonna look at Matthew 16, one to 20, really three paragraphs, and, and I'm gonna give us three questions. Two of them are clearly Jesus states them, and one of them's implied, right? It's, it's an implied question, but we're gonna work our way through the text because he wants us to think and respond. So let me look at the first paragraph, and then we'll kind of unpack it. Chapter 16, verse one. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Here's the first question that I wanna think about that Jesus ultimately is asking in this. And this is the implied question. It's not, a, it's not a, a clear, he doesn't make this question, but it's implied in this text. And it says, what time is it? What time is it? The Pharisees and Sadducees came, it says. And for us, we're like, we're used to seeing Pharisees and Sadducees. The original audience, when they see that these two groups are coming together, this would be strange. Because these are two groups of people who do not get along. We think of them as the bad guys, right? But you gotta understand, in that day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were polar opposites. And they did not like each other, and they did not agree on anything. But here, they are united. Why? Because the only thing they do agree on is they do not like Jesus of Nazareth, and they want him dead. So they put all their differences aside, and they come together united against Jesus. And they come to test him. Okay, they're not coming seeking. They're not coming wanting truth. They, co they come to test him and they say, show us a sign from heaven. Show us a sign, Jesus. If you are from God, if you are who you say you are, who's it sound like? Satan, right? We looked at it in Matthew 4. 
If you are the son of God, if you are truly from God, then prove it. Show us something. Prove it. And I was thinking about this week. If I'm, the, if I'm one of the disciples, what do I want Jesus to do? Bring it, Jesus. Do it. I mean, do that bread thing you did. Hey, I got, anybody got a cracker? Do the bread thing. Call down lightning. Do something. Shut these guys up, Jesus. Shut them up. Show them. That's what I want. But see, here's, here's why the Lord Jesus is so distinct and holy and different from us. He doesn't need to prove himself. He knows who he is. He doesn't need to prove that he is the son of God. He is confident in who he is. And he is never going to act outside the will of the father, which is what Satan tempted him to do anyway. Remember, Satan says, if you're the son of God, jump. And then the angels will rescue you. He doesn't need to prove himself. And he's never gonna act outside the will of the father. The father's not leading him to do a sign, so he's not gonna do a sign. But he is gonna answer them, and I love his answer. He, he in essence, answers by saying this. Some of you, you know, sailors, get this. Red sky at morning, sailor warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. That's what he says. That's biblical, right? That's, it, he says it right there. He says, when it is evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. He said, so what does this have to do with it? Well, look at his charge. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs, same word that they're demanding, of the times, right? He says, how is it that you are so good with the weather, but you're so bad with your Bibles? How is that? It is amazing to me that you can predict whether it's gonna rain on the Sea of Galilee or not, whether it's a good day to go sailing or boating, but you who have the scriptures, who have the prophecies, who are experts in the Old Testament, but you can miss me because I am the sign. Have you not heard what I've been doing for these two and a half years? How can you miss it? I'm the sign. And this is what, by the way, Jesus, when he's eight days old, Simeon in the temple says, Simeon blessed them, the parents of Jesus, and said to Mary, behold, this child, Jesus, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. How do you miss that I am the sign? How are y'all so good with the weather and so bad with the Bible? And so an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but you're not gonna get one. The only sign you're gonna get is the sign of Jonah. And we looked at this back in chapter 12. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection. It's like, you're gonna get a sign, me coming out of the grave. But even that, we're gonna see at the end of the book. Even though they cannot deny the resurrection, they still do not believe, which shows that it, it, he could have called down lightning from heaven. He could have had angels show up. I mean, they were there and they heard, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. They got all that. They still don't believe. So it's not an issue of a sign and it's an issue of their heart because they're evil and adulterous, right? They don't want a sign. But here's where I think this relates to us. The world we live in is very similar. We are very good at predicting the weather. Like this morning, I got a text from Tim, right? He's in charge of all our stuff that happens outside. And he's like, hey, it may rain, what do you want me to do with the, with the tables, blah, 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 blah. And what did I do? I got my phone out. I looked at Dark Sky, Dark Sky app. It says it's not gonna rain after this time. I said, Tim, we're gonna be okay because Dark Sky tells me it's not gonna rain. 
We have Doppler radar. We have apps on our phone that can predict the weather. If there's a tornado, we got alarms. You're on the golf course in the middle of your backswing and it comes on and you get off the golf course. We have people that predict the markets. We have people that predict the fashion trends. We have people who predict the odds of Alabama winning the national championship again, which is pretty good. Sorry. We have all these people that are great at predicting the natural world, and that's where we live. But do we know what time it is? And what I mean by that is not, he uses the word time in this text, not chronos, which means it's 927. He uses the word kairos, which is the era, the, the, the era that which we live. Right? Do you, do you know in the time in which you live? Do you know in, in God's redemptive calendar of what he is doing, do you know when you live? Peter said in Acts 2 that we live in the last days. Now that was 2,000 years ago. It's been the last days for a long time. But as time progresses, things seem to be getting worse. And, and if you look at the signs... Jesus says, no one knows the time or the hour when the Son of Man's coming. But as, as things kind of show up, there's, there's some signs that you're like, it's getting close. Paul says in 2 Timothy, understand this, in the last days, there'll become times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. Is that true of today? I mean, 10 years ago, did we have anything called the selfie? We do now. Some of you are obsessed with the selfie right? You have apps on your phone to make your selfie look filtered and look nicer than it should, right? People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Is that true? No. (laughs) Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I mean, yeah, kids have always been disobedient to parents. Have we ever seen disobedience to parents? I mean, 50 years ago, there was disobedience, but not, not on a level there is today. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, Unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's what it, as, as we get closer to the closest to the end, this is what's gonna happen, right? Do you know what time it is? Do you know that, I mean, again, for most of us, you grew up, with there is a little piece of land in the Middle East called Israel and there's a, there's a nation that lives there. You realize that for 2,500 years, that was not the case. After, uh, when, when Israel was taken out of the land by Babylon, they never were a nation again. Yeah, they, they lived in the land, but they were a conquered people by, by Assyria and Greece and Rome. And then they were done in 70 AD. And for 2,000 years, there was no Israel. There was no nation Israel. There was Jews scattered throughout the planet, but there was no nation of Israel until 1948. And they went back into the land where Hebrew is now spoken, right? Just like the Old Testament promised. You realize the Old Testament says in the last of the last days, there's gonna be a coalition from the north, which is modern day Russia, and a coalition from the east, and these nations are gonna rise up and ultimately go against Israel. Read the news, what China and Russia and Iran and all these people are doing. And again, I'm not predicting tomorrow Jesus is coming back. What I am saying, when you see the sign, you say, what time is it? It's getting close. And the point is this. When you know what time it is, there should be an urgency. 
Jesus could come back tomorrow. He could come back in a thousand years. But the point is there should be some urgency that the message of the gospel needs to get out and the people of God need to be ready. I, I picture in the, in the uh, Tom Hanks in that Polar Express movie where he's always looking at his watch. Oh my God, we gotta go, right? Because Santa Claus is ready to come in town, right? He's, but he's constantly looking at his watch. There's an urgency. And the people of God, there should be some urgency that the message of the gospel and, and there should be a readiness that I, when the son of man returns, Jesus says, is he gonna find faith? Peter says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness, right? Uh, the end of all things is near, Peter says, so be sober and, and, and self-controlled. Why? For the purpose of prayer. There, we need to stop piddling around with the weather and the, the odds makers and what the market is gonna do and know the time, know the time, right? That, that there is a urgency to the message of the gospel. And I'm not saying we don't go to work and we just quit our jobs and we sit on the mountain and sing Kumbaya until Jesus comes back. But James 4 says we should not be like, well, next year I'm gonna go to so-and-so and make a profit. And do. He says, you don't know what your life's gonna be like in a year. If the Lord wills, yeah, you pray that. But for now, you, got, you better be diligent. You better be ready. Jesus, when, we, when he talks about the end in, in Matthew 24 and 25, he's gonna tell two parables. One of the talents where God gives talents to people and then he's gonna ask hey, how did you use these talents? Better be ready. And then he's gonna tell a parable of 10 virgins, five which are not ready for the bridegroom and five that are. He says, you better be ready. And the point is this, do you know what time it is, church? Are we lulled to sleep? That's, that's the question. And I'm not looking for, you for a response from you. I'm looking for you to think about that today as you go and you get in your community groups and you get your family. Are you living with some urgency? What time is it? It's a good question for us to ask, right? It's the question Jesus is ultimately saying. Let's continue, verse five. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples began discussing among themselves saying, uh, we brought no bread. But Jesus aware of this said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood. They did not tell them to beware of leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so you ever see how, how often it is Jesus will say something and it'll be like right over the people's heads? He's talking about one thing and they're hearing the other. So the woman uh, at the well, he says, if you have the water I offer, you'll never thirst again. She's like, ooh, I need that so I never have to come again and I have to work anymore. He's like, no, 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 you're missing the point. Or Nicodemus, he's like, you must be born again. You wanna enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. He's like, wait, I'm like 6'1", 220. How is that physically possible? He's like, right over your head. No, I'm not talking about that. That's what's going on here. So they get to the other side and, and Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples are all like, who's, wait, Mark's gospel says we, they only had one loaf of bread left. And so they're like, whose job was it to get bread? Bartholomew, wasn't it your job? No, one, my job. Judas, wasn't it? Who's, who was supposed to get the bread? Somebody was supposed to get the bread. Jesus needs bread, everybody. He's, he needs bread. Well, whose job was it to get the bread? It's like whoosh, over their heads. And Jesus is shaking his head. He's like, are you kidding me? Do you think, 
that I need bread, really? Have, and he says, you, you have little faith. So why is he slamming him for faith, right? He says, don't you, don't you remember the five loaves and the two fish? How many baskets left over? 12, that's right. Don't you remember the, the 4,000? How many, you had seven at the beginning and a few fish. How many were left over? Seven. Do you really think that, that lack of, of, of uh, gluten-free bread is my issue? Do you think that's a struggle? No, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they're like, oh, I get it. He's not telling them to beware of, of don't buy bread from the Pharisees because it's bad bread, it's spoiled. That's, that's apparently what they're thinking. He's talking about their teaching. Oh, I get it, right? I understand now. And here's a second question, where ultimately, if you wanna summarize it, is what are you thinking? Or you could say, what in the world are you thinking? Right, if you had kids, again, what in the world are you thinking? But the point is this, where is your mind? What are you dwelling on? What do you think about most often? Because Jesus is offering a very serious warning to his, to his disciples. When Jesus says, beware, be on the alert, that's serious. And it completely whew, goes over their head. Why? Because they're thinking about mundane, fleshly things like bread. Their, earth, their minds are on the things of the earth, which is encouraging to me because these are the guys that build the church. These are the guys that are the foundation of the church and they struggle with thinking about fleshly things. So that's encouraging to me because that's where we live sometimes, right? But the question to ask yourself is where's your mind? What are you dwelling on? What are you focusing on? What is your life spent thinking about? Mundane things like social media, or money, or binge watching the next whatever, or who do we play next Saturday or next Sunday? Because Jesus is trying to get your attention. Beware of these false ideologies, this false teaching, this value system that if you let it, it will eat your lunch, pun intended, right? Because it's out there. And if, you're not, if your mind is on bread, you're gonna be lulled to sleep and it's gonna be permeating throughout your life and throughout your value system and you have to be aware. This is why the scripture is always very heavy handed when it comes to false teaching, right? Because false teaching is like leaven. This is what he says, the leaven of Pharisees. And again, this is very cultural. We, don't, we just go to, buy, to the Publix and we buy a loaf of bread. But leaven by nature is a corruptive agent it permeates, it spreads, and you only need a little bit. And so if you were making bread back then, some of you make bread now. I don't know why, because you can buy a loaf for like 99 cents or something. No, not anymore, like 6.99 cents, but <laughs> it used to be. <laughs> but you, if you were making your own bread, all you take is a little bit of leaven and you put it into that, that dough and it permeates that entire deal. And before you bake it, what you would do is you would take just a small piece of that dough and you put it over here and then you bake that loaf. And then when you get the new dough, you take that, that leaven from previous and you just kind of mix it in there and it spreads and then you take a little piece off and then you have it for the next. It, that the nature of it is it corrupts, is it spreads. And you can't do anything to stop it, right? And he says, false teaching, false values, 
False ideologies are just like that. It takes just a little bit to get in. And if you're not aware, if you're thinking about bread, you'll be lulled to sleep and you won't notice that it creeps in. And before too long, you have a whole loaf of it. And you're like, well, how did I get a whole loaf? So he says, beware, be alert. Where's your mind? What are you thinking? Are you alert? And he gives two, the two, the two he says is beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. Two common ideologies that have crept into the church. What's the Pharisees? Pharisees is legalism. It's a works-based righteousness. Look at us. Look at our room. It's pretty full. Even with our worshipers up in Athens, or Atlanta, sorry. We're pretty full. We're pretty good. Look at ours. Look how good we are. Look how good, look what I do. I haven't missed a quiet time in three weeks. I tithe, I give, I serve. I'm in community group. God must be happy with me. God must delight in me and us and bet more so than them because they do X or they do Y. Does that ever creep into the church? Our church is better than your church. I'm better than you because you do X and I do Y and my kids don't do this, but your kids do that and my marriage is this and my, we ever do that? No. And it creeps in and it is deadly because it leads to arrogance and pride and lack of dependence on the Holy Spirit and it relies on giftedness and strategy and plans and not God moving. And it seems religious because it's external. Right? Because the Pharisees were all about the externals. Seems pretty and good, but inside it's dead. We gotta be aware of it. You gotta be alert. You gotta stay aware. That's why we have constantly remind ourselves of the gospel, that we are needy, that we're broken, that you're not worthy. It's what Clint says every time he gets on stage, that God loves you not because you, because of him. Right? That's legalism. But here's the other one, and this is creeping in probably more so than it ever has before, the, the leaven of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a political group, okay? They were not technically, they were religious, but they really didn't have any religion. They actually didn't believe anything. They denied everything. They denied the existence of angels and demons. They denied the resurrection. They believed in a God, but he was kind of a distant God. He really didn't care. They, they really were more of a political group. They would be what we would say theologically liberal. Not politically, they would be theologically liberal. They really just, whatever. Whatever was pragmatic. Whatever worked. Because what they wanted was to stay in power, to stay in, have their money, to have influence. And so whatever, wherever the flow of the Roman government or whoever was in charge went, whether it was Herod or the Rome, they would just follow as long as they could stay in power. So they had no conviction, no real truth to anchor into. So it's actually, if you read about it, it's funny in Acts 22, Paul is on trial and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there and he recognizes this group, Sadducees, this group, Pharisees. And so he says, I am here because I believe in the resurrection because he knows that these two don't agree. The Pharisees don't uh, agree with the resurrection. The Sadducees don't. And he gets them to turn on themselves and then they're fighting and he's just standing back laughing because they don't believe it. The Sadducees don't believe in anything. But what we've seen creep into the church and it's just like leaven is, is well, doctrine doesn't really matter. I mean, you believe what you want to believe and we'll just all be accepting of what you believe. And so let's not talk about sin 
Let's not talk about a sexual ethic that's biblical. Let's not talk about the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father because that might be offensive. Let's not talk about these things, right? We just gotta be welcoming and we gotta just, you know, we don't wanna, doctrine just divides. Yeah, it divides truth and error. It divides eternity in heaven and hell. That's what it divides, right? And I've seen it a thousand times, y'all, a bazillion times, where it always starts, where this kind of creeps in, this theological liberalism. It always starts with, well, did God really say? It's Genesis 3. It always starts with the inerrancy of Scripture, every time, every time. Because if I can start denying what God has said here, then I can start doing whatever I want. And I can validate whatever lifestyle I want. If there's not a transcendent truth that speaks from the outside into our soul, then we decide, otherwise we decide the truth. Well, this is true, this is not. We decided it. This is where the culture is. That's the Sadducees, right? That, that's, the, that's the leaven of the Sadducees and it corrupts and it destroys and it will destroy a church and its influence and its impact, right? And he says, beware. And look, the world is pushing it. It just is. The media is pushing it. The PhDs, your professors are pushing it. The politicians are pushing it. It's not new. The Pharisees, the Sadducees were the PhDs and the politicians and the media of that day. So if Jesus was, was here today, he would not say the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, beware of cable news. Beware of college professors. Beware of the newspapers, of the media. Beware of the experts, the so-called experts. Because they're pushing a value system and expectations and all these things that are false. And if you let them creep in, they'll eat your lunch, right? They'll eat your lunch. So you gotta say, what am I thinking? Where, where am I dwelling? What am I focusing on, right? Am I being lulled to sleep by social media, the 3.7 hours I spend on Instagram every day? Just be alert. Be aware. This is why knowing the truth is so important. This is what Paul says in Colossians. I think this is a great verse for us to think about before we move on. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, and the if is not in question, it's a first class condition, it's assumed true. If you have been raised with Christ, and you have, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, link, lock in. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Lock in to the truth. It's not that's to say you shouldn't root for your football team. It's not to say you shouldn't plan for retirement. That's not the point. The point is this. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's where you go. Because you know what time it is. Seek the kingdom. Seek what is true. Know the truth. Beware. Renew your mind with scripture. Guard your heart. All these things we've been talking about. Right? But it's a good question. What are you thinking? Where's your mind? What are you dwelling on? And then one more, one more question. And this is probably the most important one. And it's this, what do you believe? What do you believe? Famous passage, verse 13. When Jesus came to, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus takes his disciples as far north as he's ever gonna go to Caesarea Philippi. And this is a significant city for two reasons. And some of you, if you've ever been to Israel, you probably went to Caesarea Philippi. It's significant for, the, for one reason, because this is where the Jordan River basically starts. This is the headwaters for the Jordan River. The Jordan River is the lifeline to the nation of Israel. If there's no Jordan River, Israel's desert. It already is desert, but now you have a Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee because, so this is where life starts for Israel, basically. It's also significant because this is, at this time, is home to many pagan temples, at least 14 that we know of. One of the, the, the chief uh, pagan deities, Pan, who was half goat, half man, his main temple was there. This city was actually named after Caesar, right? Caesar being worshiped as God. So Jesus takes his disciples to the place where life begins for Israel in essence and a place where there's statues and there's still all these statues. You can go to there today. There's all these ruins of statues of all these deities, right? Multiple gods upon gods upon gods. And he asks them two questions. First one's a practice question. Doesn't count. Second one's pass fail. It's huge. First question is, who do people say I am? What's word on the street? What are they saying? What are they, what are they talking about? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah, some say all these things, which is complimentary because these were all great spokespeople of God. But it's interesting that those people are all dead. Elijah's been dead 900 years. Jeremiah dead 600 years. John the Baptist is dead recently, but all these dead people come back. And, and it's similar today. There seems to be no consensus. Who's Jesus? You ask people today, who is Jesus? He's a good prophet. He's a teacher. He's a, a religious, moral leader. He was a myth. He was fill in the blank. But then Jesus turns and he gets serious and it's emphatic in the Greek text. It doesn't come across in English, but it come, it's very strong in the Greek. The first word is you. What about you? You 12. You've been with me for two and a half years. Who do you say that I am? And without hesitation, Peter steps up to the plate course, he's the first to speak. He speaks for all of them. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. All the prophecies of the Old Testament, that is you. The son of Abraham, the son of David, all that, the king of kings, that is you. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And it's not just saying you are God's son. You're, you're just, you're just his, his big boy. No, it, the idea is you are the same as the Father. The Son, the same essence as his Father. You are deity. You are Messiah. You are King. That's the pass-fail question. And Jesus says, Yahtzee. Uno. Bingo, Peter. Blessed are you. And he doesn't say, blessed are you. You're so smart. You figured it out. Good job, Peter. He says, the only reason you know this is because my father revealed it to you. So even your great answer, you cheated. The father gave you the answers, but that's okay. And then he makes this statement, and this is kind of the debated statement throughout the centuries. Um, he says, I tell you, you are Peter. You are Cephas. 
your rocky. And on this rock, similar word, but different. He uses the word Petros, right? Rock, but then he uses the word Petra, feminine in the, in the Greek. It's a different word. And on this rock, I will build my church. So there's all sorts of debate. What is the Petra in which Jesus has built his church? I can tell you what it's not. The Roman church has said, the rock on which the church is built is Peter. And so there's a succession from Peter down the line to Pope John Paul, the whatever, and the Pope. And, and this is where they get the Pope, that there is a vicar of Christ who speaks es cathedra from the chair and whatever he says is absolute truth because he's speaking es cathedra. And so there's been this succession of popes and this apostolic succession that is not what he is saying here for multiple reasons. Number one, because the word Peter and the word rock are different in the original. Number two, if Peter is the rock on which the church is built, then we are a sorry bunch. Because in just a few verses, Peter's gonna be going from blessed to being called Satan, okay? We'll look at that next week, all right? And then thirdly, if Peter is the first pope, then the early church missed it. Because in Jerusalem, Peter is not the head of the church. James the stepbrother, the half-brother of Jesus is the, the head of the church. Peter's not even the head. He's not even in charge. So they missed it if he's supposed to be the Pope. So then what, if he's not the Pope, what is, what is Jesus talking about? And you can read the commentaries and there's several different suggestions. I think that the traditional view is the best, is that the rock on which Jesus is gonna build his church is the confession of the apostles that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of David, that upon that confession and that truth, Jesus being Messiah, Jesus being the son of God, I will build my church. And the bigger issue is not what Petra is. The bigger issue is that this is the first time Jesus talks about us in the gospel of Matthew. This is the first mention of the church, which is awesome, right? This is, it's, it's a great passage that this is us. Right? And notice it's future tense. I will build. The church doesn't exist yet. It doesn't happen until Acts chapter two. Peter stands up. He preaches what? Jesus was the son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is resurrected. The very thing that he just confessed. And once that happens, the spirit falls on 3,000 people, get saved, and the church of Jesus, the bride of Christ, is born. And what's significant, Jesus says three things about us here that I want us to grasp. Number one, he says, he's the one who builds the church. Isn't that interesting? We think, oh, no, we're building, we're building something here. We're not building anything. We're part of it. Jesus is the builder. We may water and we may, we may sow and we may you know, plant. Jesus is the one who builds his church, which is a huge, it's great for us because it's, it's humbling to remember that you are important, but you are not essential. Right? You are invited into this deal, but you are not the heavy. Jesus is the heavy. It's his church. And the second, that's the second thing. It's he's building and it's his church. I will build my church. I'll often run into people in Walmart and Publix and I'm like, hey, Bill, you don't know me, but I go to your church. And I know what they mean, but it's not my church. I just am one little brick in this, found, this building, right? This is Jesus's church. He paid for it. And Jesus, y'all, he loves his church. Do you know how much Jesus loves his church? So much so that he laid his life down for us. And then the last statement is the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And it's interesting, a lot of commentators believe, and I think this is, is probably the case, if you go to Caesarea Philippi, there's this temple to Pan, and at the back of this temple to Pan, there was a cave, and this cave went underneath, you know, down in, under the ground where you couldn't go down. It was a subterranean sub, uh, uh, crack in the wall where they would offer sacrifices to God Pan. They'd throw goats down, they'd throw kids down, they'd throw all sorts of things to sacrifice. And it was, they believed that that was a portal to the gates of hell. They believed it was a portal to the underworld. And Jesus takes his disciples to this place where multiple gods are worshiped, where the supposed gates of hell are. And he says, I'm gonna start a movement based on what you just said, Peter. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I mean, think about that, right? We live in a world where we're like, oh, the world is so bad. Look where the world is going to hell in a hay basket. They were, they were offering child sacrifices in the cave. They were worshiping all sorts of deities and all sorts of chaos. And Jesus takes a bunch of basically teenagers, teenage, 18, 17, 19 year old dudes. Matthew's probably a little older because he's got a job, right? He's the t- he went to school, for, he's an accountant, but he's probably the oldest one. A bunch of teenagers, he says, I'm gonna take you teenagers with the confession that I am the Messiah, the son of God. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you and you are going to rock the world. And the Roman empire, which is the most powerful empire who ever lived, could not squash the church. It couldn't stop it. Every time they stepped on it, it was like cockroaches. It just spread. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to deny everything. They tried to, they tried to shut them up. They couldn't do it. And the church just spread. And Jesus' point is, when I start this movement, this ecclesia, this church, which is in essence just people gathered for a purpose. It's people with a purpose. The gates of hell won't prevail. And what I want us to see is we today are part of that movement. That's us. You are here today because the gates of hell will not prevail against the confession, the church that is built upon the fact that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the son of David, that he is the Messiah, that he died and he rose again and nothing's gonna stop it, nothing. Now they can, they can kill us and they can attack us and they can try to shut us up, but they will not stop it. And he even goes on and says, I'm gonna give you the keys to heaven and, and it, what's loose in heaven. And the idea here is not Peter sitting at the gate, why should I let you into God's heaven? You know, the old far side, it's not that. The idea is this, what you do when we proclaim Jesus the Messiah, we change the eternity of people. For some who reject it, we change their eternity. They, they're, they're destined to be apart from Christ. But some will have their eyes open like Peter and they will forever, their eternity change. And when you serve Christ, when you proclaim Christ, you are impacting eternity, y'all. We are impacting eternity. Every time you give to the church and that money goes to proclaim the gospel, every time you serve in a capacity behind the scenes so that the gospel is proclaimed, you are changing the eternity of men and women and boys and girls. And that's what we are doing. Why? Because we stand on the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he is the son of David, right? That's what we are doing. And so we come back to that question. What do you believe? It's interesting at the end here, he says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody yet. Because he wasn't done yet. But then at the end of the book, what does he say? Tell everybody. And so if you ask the question again, what do I believe? If you believe this, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the son of the living God, it has to change the way you live. It just has to. Doesn't it? 
You could say, yeah, I believe that, but if it doesn't change you, then, then, then really you don't believe it. Because Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? Right? That, that's the question he asks. And so for us, it's, if you believe that this is true and that the gospel changes the eternity of men and women and that there's an urgency and that the time is short, then it has to move you to action, y'all. It has to move you to, to, to urgency with the gospel message and urgency in your life. And it has to, you have to evaluate, why am I spending seven hours a day on my phone? Why am I so concerned whether or not we're gonna win a national title? Why am I so care so much about how much I have in my retirement account. You have to start asking those questions. And am I having an impact for the one who is the son of God? So I don't have an answer. I don't have an action point, but I do have this. Ask yourself these questions because Jesus is asking us, what do you believe? Do you know what time it is? What are you thinking about? Because he wants us to move to action, right? So we're gonna sing and we're gonna worship. And that's a chance for us to think about those things. Is there a relationship that you need to restore because it's, the time is short and you've wronged this person and you need to go to them? Is there something you need to confess? Is there some sin that needs to be repented of? Whatever that is, take this time as we sing and as we reflect and ask these questions yourself during the week. Do I know what time it is? What am I thinking about? And what do I believe? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the church which you are building by your son and what he has done for calling us to yourselves, not because we are worthy, but because you are. And I pray that we would ask ourselves, what do we really believe? Do we really believe what we say we believe, really? Because it'll show up in our lives. Because faith without works is useless. And so use us, send us to proclaim with urgency the name of Jesus. Because at his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's in Christ's name I pray. You guys can stand.